If you would, please take your Bibles out and turn them over to the book of Daniel. There we resume our study this morning. For those of you who are visiting with us, our methodology here at the chapel is we preach the Bible book by book, verse by verse, and we right now are working our way through Daniel's, uh, the book of Daniel, and we are now in the prophetic side of Daniel in chapter 8. So if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles and turn them over to chapter 8, that's where we will get to in just a few moments. When we were singing here just a few minutes ago, we sang one of my favorite hymns, which is, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. I love that hymn for a number of different reasons. Some of them are simple. But the simplicity I like about it is such that you have the author of this hymn who's offering up, he's offering up his weakness and he's putting it in the perspective of how does God respond to him in his weakness? Well, God's response to him is, or the way that he sees God's response is, there is a love that doesn't let me go no matter how far I fall, how hurt I am, or how broken I've become. And, <clears throat> excuse me, the stanza that stuck out to me the most, I love them all, O light that follows all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. How many of you this morning feel like your torch is flickering? It's not burning brightly, it's a flicker. And we're trying to carry that torch and it's a flicker. He says, I yield my flickering torch back to you. I give you, I, I give you all that I am. I'm a flickering torch and it's yours. Use it. He says, my heart restores its borrowed ray, the borrowed ray from Christ, that in, that, in your sunshine, it's going to blaze and its day is going to be brighter and fairer than all. Beloved, I don't know about you this morning, but I, I often feel like a flickering torch. And I praise God this morning as we sing that truth that he will take our flickering torch and turn it into a blaze of Christ. Not for anything that we do, but for who he is. And I think that's astounding. This morning we find ourselves in the, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 8. We began it two weeks ago last week. We took the Sunday off for communion. And we, the, the Sunday previous to that, we began looking at the vision. We saw the vision of the ram and, and then the interpretation of it. This morning we continue to look at this vision as it unfolds. Now we've seen the ram. We've seen that vision. We're going to look at the vision of the, of the goat that Daniel happens to see. And as we know, these visions have historical significance. We're going to get into that here in just a few moments. But God was revealing to Daniel human history. We've kind of talked about that a little bit. But more importantly than just focusing on the history aspect of it, what God is revealing to Daniel is his own character, his own, the own way he manifests himself in history and where he's guiding that history. So he's pushing history in a direction. And he uses all kinds of things, all kinds of little details, all kinds of people who are part of the makeup of what God is doing. And so when we say that everything has purpose, that's not trite or cliche, it's very intentional. God has purpose. God has built a world of purpose. God sends people in our lives and events in our lives for a purpose. God raises up and puts down kingdoms for a purpose. And the purpose really is quite simple, that the glory of God may abound, that his people may be moving to the good end of redemption and salvation. And so when we read these prophetic visions of Daniel, they have a purpose. Yes, God says, you are going to walk through pain. It is going to be hard. 
Your life is going to be hard, but I'm reigning and I'm leading you to a good end. And so we take heart in that. And so this morning we continue on. As you'll notice, I'm I'm breaking this up with the vision and the interpretation. So we're going to look at Daniel chapter 8, verses 5 to 8, and then skip down and read verses 21 and 22. So without further delay, beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. Daniel chapter 8, verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Now skip down to verse 21. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, we come this morning. We are flickering torches but you are a great bonfire. And so we come to you this morning asking for your light to renew our minds and hearts. Transform us, I pray, by the truth of your scripture and continue to help us dig deeply into this word that we might have understanding of your love, your mercy, and your sovereignty. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. In August of 1588, something very astounding happened. The noted, the Spanish Armada was defeated at the Battle of Gravelines by the English fleet. It seemed impossible. The Spanish Armada was big Spanish galleons with big booming cannons made of nice hard wood oak that made them almost impenetrable for cannon fire. And so they usually mastered other ships in the sea because they had the strength to do it. They were strong. Well, the English, who had smaller ships, more maneuverable, engaged them in a particular part of the channel that gave them this opportunity to maneuver, get in, get in close enough, fire and pierce the holes, and then back out of there before Spain could rearm and fire. And, and England wiped the floor with the Spanish armada, beat them, beat them badly. And so the, the big galleons, though they were strong, though they were well-armed, their strength worked against them in this, particular, in this particular event because these smaller maneuverable ships, as I said, they were able to outclass them in the water and sent them back limping and broken. It seems unimaginable. Of course, we probably don't think much about it because we don't have, we, we, we don't, we're not privy to big naval battles anymore, not really. But this was a shockwave because England should not have won. It reminds us that the mighty always fall. Those who are mighty, who seem to be mighty, things that seem so insurmountable, always fall. That eventually their demise comes. You see, these Spanish ships were overcome by something that was weaker than them, smaller than them, that shouldn't have, been beat, that shouldn't have beaten them, and yet 
this, these, this armada, it fell. Beloved, when, when I read stories like that, of course, when we extrapolate back to, back to things of God, we're looking at all the worldly strength that we see displayed around us. All of it is as nothing to the Lord. This is nothing. Now, that doesn't make life any less painful. Sure, it doesn't. It doesn't. But it does make life more hope-filled when we remember that everything we walk through, every power we come against, all the political power in the world is as nothing to Yahweh, to the living God. When we're looking at Daniel 8, we continue to see this vision of the ram and the goat unfold. And we remember that Daniel, I want us to remind, when did Daniel see this vision? Well, he dated it in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So that would have been around 550 B.C. And so I want us to keep in mind, I'm going to reiterate something I said already. So during the reign of Belshazzar, Daniel saw the fall of Babylon. So this is a few years before Babylon fell. He saw the rise and fall of Persia. Persia is not even knocking on the door yet. And he saw the rise of Greece and the death of her first great king and four others rise up several hundred years before that happens. So we need to take account of this, that this is a powerful vision that Daniel sees. This is nothing to slough off or, or bat an eye at. This is important. Daniel saw the future, and I wonder what must have gone through his mind to see the rise and fall of these kingdoms coming and going. It had to be alarming. He's even used that word already. Daniel was aware. Now keep in mind, Daniel knew that the exile was supposed to be 70 years. <coughs> Excuse me. He's aware that it's coming to a close. And what does he see? He, sees the, he knows that the exile is coming to a close, but he sees pagan kingdoms continue to come and continue to dominate. <clears throat> what is he telling us? Well, at the very least, our hope is not just in the exile ending. And once the exile ends, it's not going to make all our problems go away. We're still going to, we're still going to have to live our lives. We're still going to have to walk through valleys. We're still going to have to deal with tyrants. We're still going to have to deal, witness injustice and oppression and hardship. The exile is not going to be our Savior. Only God is that. And we need to take that seriously. Sometimes we get so caught up in thinking, if I can just get through this circumstance, everything will be okay. Beloved of God, another one's coming. Another one's coming. Our contentment is not in the circumstances ending. Our contentment is in the Lord. I'm preaching to me this morning on that one. Our contentment is in the Lord. Daniel is, is, is very subtly trying to help us say, contentment is not in the thing ending. It's in, it's in God. It's in Yahweh. And beloved, we have to live that out. We have to believe that and truly trust in that. So Daniel is saying that, you know, hey, pagan kingdoms are still going to come and they're going to dominate. God's people are going to have to live with hope during years of tyranny. And the same is true for you and for me. We still have to live with hope in years of tyranny. But we must appreciate the gravity of this, really. It, it, it's easy to skip over, especially reading the Bible, over hundreds of years of history because we don't have to live it. You know, it's easy for us to think, wow, this is pretty incredible. He saw Persia, and then, or he saw Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, and he saw Alexander the Great pass away. I mean, it's fascinating, but these people had to walk through it. It wasn't just one Sunday morning sermon. It was day after day after day after day after day. And we can imagine some probably got jaded. Some probably got super disheartened. Some became indifferent. Some 
gave up belief. Beloved, Satan is well aware of how powerful pain is. Well aware. It's a favorite goal, tool of his to keep us in fear of it or living in it so that we despair. Daniel is writing so that the people of God don't despair. Daniel had to square the end of the exile with more kingdoms coming, and all this with God's faithfulness. Now, keep that in mind. The end of the exile is coming. He knows that. He knows he's aware of the 70 years. But now God is telling him, yeah, but by the way, here comes Persia, and then after them is Greece, and, oh, and basically after them is Rome. And then you're going to be constantly dealing with this antichrist power that's in the world. So Daniel's having to square all this, and so are you and me, by the way, you and I. You and me? Doesn't matter. Yeah, you and I, right? It's you and I. <laughs> Sorry. We have to square this too. We have to square the fact that in, in the midst of all this, and you think about your deepest, darkest valley, think, and we all have them, but if we think about our deepest, darkest valley, in the deep, in the depths of that valley, do we genuinely and earnestly believe that God is faithful? Because that's what Satan wants to whisper to you this morning. If you're there or you've been there, he wants to say, see, if God was faithful, you wouldn't be going through this. If God was faithful, you wouldn't be here. If God was faithful, you wouldn't have to walk through this. Well, beloved of God, because God is faithful, he leads us through it. Because you never know when you're going to have the privilege of coming beside a brother or sister and picking them up throwing their arm around your shoulder in their deep, dark valley and say, hey, I've been here. Let me walk with you through it. And then you're going to remember the faithfulness of God. God is faithful, and he, these kingdoms are going to come and go. Political movements come and go. Cultural norms come and go. And some of these things are awful, terrible, the worst. But beloved of God, as Martin Luther so wonderfully penned the kingdom of God is forever and it doesn't change and what is happening with all this God is leading us home this morning with those thoughts in mind there's one idea I want us to see and it's this that the strong give way to a greater strength that the strong give way to a greater strength you know the old cliche there's always a bigger fish and there is there's always a bigger fish. There's always we see somebody who's the biggest, baddest dude around or the biggest, baddest person around or the biggest, baddest politician, whatever, whatever you want to put in there, and somebody, they always end up getting beat somehow, some way, because there's always going to be a bigger fish. And so because that's true, for the Christian, the bigger fish is Yahweh. I'm not trying to be irreverent. That we appeal to a greater power than everything. That, yes, what if someone comes and they insult us they take our things. They, they, they try to attack our honor or our character. They try to attack us physically. They can hurt us. They can put us in the hospital. They can even kill us. But what is the one thing they can't take? There is the life of Christ in you this morning. If you're in Christ Jesus, and they cannot take that, no matter what they do. They can burn us to ashes, and we are going to be in the presence of the living God. I'm going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. So Come! Let them come, because we stand on a kingdom that is forever. 
So what is God calling us to do in books like Daniel, Revelation even? He's calling us to, to gear up for the long haul, right? This is not a sprint we're in. This is a marathon. And he's calling us to gear up for the long haul. So when we think about life, I've already kind of alluded to this, that even the strong are overcome by those who are stronger. History proves this again and again and again and again and again and again. Go back and look up different people with the name The Great behind their name. There are a lot of them. Go back and look them up. Just, just Google it when you get home and look at The Great and ask yourself, how many of them are still alive? Zero. Well, at least from history anyway. There may be some of The Greats alive today but they're going to die too. Ask yourself what has become of their kingdom, of their empires. They're gone. In fact, ask yourself how well history even remembers a lot of them. Not very well, actually. Because you see, even the mighty, they fall. Because God is marching on a plan of restoring the world for himself. So when we're looking at this vision in Daniel, the mighty fall, emperors, leaders from antiquity, they're all dead. When we, we get here to chapter, or verse 5 rather, we see that Daniel sees a new animal. And he, it's a male goat, a he-goat. So I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. Uh, it is not a unicorn, it is a goat with a big horn between his eyes. So don't think unicorn, go ahead and think goat. Um, as, a, as a little aside, the King James, there, there is a particular word for horn in Hebrew that is different from the uh, Quran or Karin, uh, the word named Karen, you know, could actually be kind of a, a word that would be he, horn in Hebrew. There's a particular horn in Hebrew that is like a, a tower horn, it's a big horn. And if you look up in Numbers, I can't remember the exact reference. I think it's in Numbers 22 or 23. The King James Version actually translate the the horns of a wild ox as unicorn. Look it up. Has nothing to do with this, though. Um, So we we see this goat. We see this goat, and he's got a, a big horn in between his eyes. And so when we think of formidable animals, we might not often think of goats. Right? I mean, I don't, when I think of a scary animal, I'm not worried about a goat sneaking up on me in, in a dark alley somewhere. I mean, lions and leopards and bears, yeah, that we saw in the previous chapter, but we, we're thinking of the place where they are in history, the country that they're in, the importance of rams and goats to farm living. So he sees this goat, but it's not just any goat. It's a, it's a male goat with a big horn. He's oversized, and he's angry. So there are a few things here right out of verse 5 that we need to notice. First and foremost, he says, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth. That is important. That's an important detail. Why? Because what is west of Babylon and Persia? Greece is. Greece is west of Babylon and Persia. In fact, we know that it's Greece simply because in verse 21, he says, and the goat is the king of Greece. That clears it up. There's no debate about what the goat is. He is Greece. And, uh, and people will still try to kind of fiddle with it and try to say, well, maybe it's this, though, but it's Greece. It's Greece. The Scripture says it's Greece. It's Greece. It comes from the West, so we know that it's Greece, and verse 21 says it. Secondly, look at how it describes him. 
it says that he goes across the face of the, all the earth or all the land. Now, that's important because he's getting at the global impact that Greece is going to have here in the early part of the empire, that this is, a, this is a goat that is covering what would have been considered mo- most of the known world. So he's getting to the, the all-encompassing nature of what Alexander the Great did. He's covering all the land, and he did. He swept through the known world. Look at what he says about though. This is a peculiar fact, though. Without, so he, a male goat from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Corresponds nicely to Daniel chapter 7, verse 6, where you have the leopard with the four wings that corresponded to Greece. What was that trying to communicate to us? Speed. Speed. So now you have a goat with a big horn, which is a symbol of great power, sweeping across the whole land, not touching the ground. He's going so fast, he's literally flying through. And so we've got this powerful animal who is swift, and he is bringing destruction to the world. Now, a little bit of history. When Alexander the Great was in his early 20s, very early 20s, he conquered Persia. He conquered Persia from the years 334 B.C. to 331 B.C. He conquered Persia in three years. That's astounding. That, the, the ability to sweep through that nation and bring it to its knees and take it over is astounding that a 21, 22-year-old man, a military genius, son of the king, his, the king's best general, was able to sweep through Persia in three years and totally conquer it and take it all. And so when we think about history, Daniel is seeing Alexander the Great and what would become all of Greece sweep through the the world. And this horn, this horn on the goat's head, it's meant to be powerful. It's meant to show this powerful person who is able to dominate with with, uh, speed and power. And that's true. If you read history, it's true. It's what Alexander the Great did. Another little aside, though, do you know from, a, from an apologetic standpoint, there is more evidence that Jesus Christ lived and walked the earth than there is for Alexander the Great. There is more attested evidence that Jesus Christ lived and walked the earth than there is for Alexander the Great, yet we know that Alexander the Great lived. But just in a little apologetic side for us people who say, hey, Jesus was also real and he lived, um, because people like to question that. But anyway, Alexander the Great powerful. And it's true, he was. But beloved of God, where is he now? He did this amazing thing. And for what? Unto whose glory? He's gone. His accomplishments are remembered in history books. There's really nothing left that resembles his empire. There are countries there that he once ruled over. But God is reigning. God is reigning. He hasn't been defeated. He hasn't been overthrown. His kingdom is forever. We are told here that he came to the ram with two horns, which, he had, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with powerful wrath in verse 6. What do we, what do we, the goat didn't fear the ram. He wasn't, he wasn't scared of him. Remember, previously, other, other people had been afraid 
of the ram. No one could deliver from his hand, it said, but the goat is not afraid. Is that bravado? I mean, or is that arrogance? Is that bravado? Is it simple confidence? I don't know. It doesn't much matter. But he wasn't scared, and so he charges at this ram. But it says here in verse 7, I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him. That's actually an interesting word there. You remember in Ruth where Naomi says, no longer call me Naomi, call me uh, Mara because the Lord has made me bitter? Actually, that word enraged there is the same word there for bitterness. So literally, he was embittered against him. Why? Why would he have been embittered or enraged against him? Let me tell you why. Because Persia has power and Greece wants it. In other words, I'm coming for power because I think that power is rightfully mine. I'm coming at you with speed and power because I'm going to take what you have. That's, that is a no-sanctity-of-life worldview right there. Your life doesn't matter. You have what I want, so I'm taking it. Beloved of God, we live in a culture that operates the exact same way, that operates the exact same way with a ruthlessness that doesn't love life. What is power? People who want power, power is a zero-sum game. People who want power, they're not often, like especially in these antiquity, they're not interested in using their power to serve humanity. They're using it to tyrannize. They're using it to oppress. Dare I say, even in, in places like America where people want power so often is not so they can help the American people. They want power so they can control and oppress and keep people down. And, and incite wicked things and illegal practices and all sorts of immorality. So, beloved, power is always going to be a zero-sum game. Power is often not the friend of justice. Power is often not the friend of true, humble service. Jesus calls people in power to love justice, to truly and humbly serve, that's where the Christian should be different, even if we're in places of power. Power is a zero-sum game. The goat comes in and utterly destroys the ram. I saw him come close to the ram. He was embittered or enraged against him, and he struck the ram and broke his two horns, broke his power. That's what we need to read. Broke his power, and the ram had no power. There you go. To stand before him, but he cast him, that is, the goat cast the ram down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So the goat utterly defeats the ram, crushes his power. The ram says, he says the ram couldn't stand. <clears throat> so here we have Daniel seeing Greece humiliate Persia. And it's interesting, it says here, and no one could rescue the ram from his power. If you left your eyes, drift back up to verse 4, of speaking of the ram, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. Exact same phrase, literally. And he could not rescue from his hand. So there was no one who could rescue from the power of the ram until the goat comes along, and he does. He destroys him. And now no one can rescue from the power of the goat, guess what, until somebody else comes along, and then they will destroy him. What are we reading here? Well, at the very least, in verse 7, we're reading about the end of Persia. Why, is that? Why do we need to know that? We need to know 
that God brought Persia to an end. That's what Daniel is telling us. We need to know that God's judgment is absolutely sure. We need to remember that as we watch the wicked flourish, as we watch things in our culture and in our world just gain traction and we're sickened and we're we're perplexed, why? Why is this happening? We need to remember that God is judging the world. We need to remember that God will bring the day of judgment to this world. And beloved, we need to pray and we need to evangelize and we need to dig into the word and camp there. When we think about what Greece did to Persia, it's astounding. Greece exceeded Persia in greatness. Then the goat became exceedingly great, we're told in verse 8. The goat became exceedingly great. I'm going to stop right there. Persia, or Greece rather, exceeded Persia in greatness. The landmass that Alexander the Great, now in his early 20s, conquered was about 1.5 million square miles. How big is that, Brad? It's slightly larger than India. That's the landmass that a young man in his 20s conquered, slightly larger than India. He did it in three years. I mean, three years. That is insane. But we read, he became exceedingly great, and he did. And then here's the proverbial biblical but. But, but, when he was strong, in the height of his strength, while he was strong, let's read it that way, While he was strong, the great horn was broken. While he was strong in his strength, the great horn was broken. Alexander the Great was strong. I mean, I guess you don't get the little title, The Great, unless you're strong at something. He was strong. He died prematurely, or at least in human terms. In 323 B.C., Alexander the Great got a headache and died. He was about 33 years old. Arguably, at the height of his power, his nation, his empire, thriving, ruling the world, God brought him on the scene, somewhat mysteriously, and God took him off the scene. Strong as he was, he died. Beloved, what does this remind us, that even the strong die? You know, when, when, we, when we mourn the loss of death in our nation, I remember now it's been almost two years ago when the world was greeted to the news on a Sunday, in fact. We got home from church and read, you know, Kobe Bryant died. And we feel tragic because he was still in his 40s. And we think, oh, he's snuffed out. I mean, such a, a guy, a, a, he's a celebrity, he's, he's, he's an athlete, he's, he's this strong guy, and he's, and he's dead. Because, beloved of God, we all die. Death is coming. The strong die. So what does that tell us? What is our safeguard against death? It's not strength. It's not our abilities. It's not our giftedness. None of that is a safeguard against death. Our only hope in life and in death is Jesus Christ. This morning, that is your only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. That God leads us to a good end. We read here, God brought Alexander the Great in, and God took him out. What is the the constant message that Daniel comes back to? God is in control. Yes, nations rise, nations fall. God is in control. 
When we think about the greatness of man, beloved of God, it's always temporary. I applaud people who accomplish great things. I don't begrudge it. I think it's awesome when people do notable and noteworthy things. It's great. But you see, all those, all those things are temporary. Accomplishments are temporary. I'm not saying so then be indifferent. That's not what I'm saying at all. Accomplish things. Aspire to things. Do things with excellence. But all those things are temporary. We don't carry those to heaven with us. But God is forever. We're told in verses 8 and 22 a very similar thing. That then the goat became exceedingly great he was, when he was strong. The great horn was broken off. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the heavens. And then in verse 22, as for the horn that was broken in, in its place, which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. What ended up happening is Alexander the Great, his two sons tried to rule his empire for a little bit, and it just didn't work out. And so eventually what happened is his four greatest generals split up his empire into four different sections, and each took it and began their own empires. What Daniel is telling us here is exactly what happened in history. That's exactly what happened. They did exactly that. They took his empire, and they reestablished it, and other empires grew up out of that, other nations and empires. But what it tells us here is it says, as for the horn was broken, um, let's see, for the kingdom, four kingdoms shall rise from his nation, but not with his power. In other words, these four kingdoms are going to rise up. They're not going to be as powerful as he was or his nation was, but they're going to rise up nonetheless. And when we think about the kingdom of man, what is its primary weakness? The primary weakness of the kingdom of man is the foundation of sin that runs through it. Every kingdom in antiquity that chooses to set up a man is founded on a base level of sinful attitude, mind, and heart that cannot allow it to flourish. That is why in antiquity, when we see kingdoms, we see them start, we see them eventually descend into immorality, and we see them crumble. It happens every single time. Because the foundation is sin, and it's inevitable. The kingdom of man is always going to be weak. No matter how much tyranny or oppression or power they seem to have, beloved of God, the chink in the armor is a commitment to sin and self rather than the true and living God. When we think of sin and death, they are treacherous. When we try to serve the sin nature, what does it do? It kills, and it steals, and it destroys. That does not lead us to a good end. The whole message of Scripture is to keep in mind that sin fails, and it will lead us to failure. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with this statement here. The mighty will all bow to the true and living God. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Beloved, so much of our culture has made a God an idol of might because we've been fostered on the idea or the notion that only the strong survive. That's not even remotely true. That's not even remotely true. In one place I can tell you that's, that data is observable. 
You've heard me mention survival stories before. In survival situations, it is often the strong that die first. You know why? Because they put so much confidence in what they can accomplish. I'm strong, I'm healthy, I'm good, I'm going to do this, and they end up dying because they make their strength their strength. What seems mighty in this world is less than a trifle to the true and living God. All the kings, persons of influence, and those whom we consider truly powerful, they are going to bow their knee to God like everyone else. Rulers in antiquity said, I'm a divine being. I am God incarnate and beloved. They were all liars. There was one man who can say that, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus came as God incarnate, not to lord over others and tyrannize and oppress, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that Paul would say of him later, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. The one divine being, the one divine man, the God man, that one who actually came, he came to be sin for us so that in this one, in this divine man, we would have the righteousness of God. Not so that we could be subservient and he can walk all over us, so that he could lift us up from the ashes and give us life. That's the true divine man. Jesus has shown us what true power is. It's sacrificial love. It's humility. It's weakness that depends on the strength of the Father. Beloved, this morning, it's not strength you need. It's not strength I need. We need the Lord. We need Jesus. We come in our weakness because we are privy to the strength of the living God. And when we have that strength, we don't need anything else. May we remember that. And may it shape how we live. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word this morning. It's the true beauty and depth of it is immeasurable. Thank you for the richness of it. Thank you for the way that it feeds our soul. It shepherds our heart. It renews our minds. And I pray that it would. I pray that you would restore us, Lord, that you would, in our deepest, darkest valley, as we are giving up our flickering torch, you would consume it with the great fire of your presence and who you are and enfold us, I pray, that we would know we are hopeful, content, found and saved and delivered in you. Be with us, I pray, through Christ. Amen.